Welcome to the Dark Days Dawning Cult Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Mulvihill, and today I've titled this episode as Autism Dad Talks About Autism. This podcast was initially heavily researched, and then after I did all my research, I had all this mountains of paper in front of me, I decided to be brave and to contribute my personal experience of being a father of a young autistic child to the material that I had gathered up. And I found myself actually writing the, um, the script for this episode very naturally, not having to really look at my notes. Um, such was the, my ability to uh, share my experience. And then a lot of the information was really off the top of my head. I obviously wrote the handscript and I want to say that the handscript has some form of um, themes that I wish to let you know in advance of what they are. I will definitely be discussing autism history, autism definitions, or fake autism treatments and fake autism cures and the abuses of autistic uh, children and adults by their educators and carers. And lastly, of course, I will be discussing my role as a proud autistic father. So, as you may gather, it's the middle of November. Well, it's actually coming to the end. Um, but as I was writing the hand, the handscript, this um, podcast, literally by hand, not by typing it up. I wanted everything to feel organic. Um, I would have been sitting on my bed, and it would have been dark outside and cold. And I have this work to do, and I'm feeling it's it's as I have to wake up very early in the morning. I'm not a morning person, and there's actually so many pages. It feels like a mountain, and I always feel like, will I ever actually get this podcast written? Because I've been with it for so so long, and it concerns me. This this um, all this research I have, that the people who are listening to me, they may think I'm indifferent to what I'm talking about. And that it's not deeply personal and deeply subjective to me. Yet I've been researching this stuff for months and that's why nobody has heard from me who knows about my podcast. You might think I've been either inactive or I've just quit. Now you might know if you've followed my podcast that I focused on things like in previous episodes like James Joyce, Men Decide, Cults, The Heaven's Gate Cult cult initiation and sex. I even did a podcast on the Children of God cult, but then I deleted it because I didn't want to include it. So you might think, well, I, w I haven't, you know, really set my uh, viewers up for uh, a podcast that will be about autism. That's true. But I would say that uh, studying cults and studying sects has enriched my understanding of the world and how people operate and of human predators and in the autism world there are a lot of ill-meaning exploitive people who gaslight you who love bomb you and they promise you the world and what you get in return is absolutely horrendous and i'm talking about all the bad services that are out there and all the services that delay the gratification uh, that your child will actually get these resources that they're actually entitled to by law and they never do so you could say the psychology of cults has helped me, has enriched my already previous 
any previous uh, research that I've done on autism. You could say if I had sense, I'd simply go to bed. But because being the father of um, a child, a young child, one has to have plenty of energy. But I, I just really want to do this podcast and I really want to convey how important this podcast is to me and to my family and to my loved ones. Because someone I happen to love, someone I happen to adore with all my heart is actually an autistic person. I would like to define myself and my better half and even my son, my older son, as not just my relatives, my closest relatives, but they are also proud people to be related to this autistic child. And of course, we have changed from just being parents or just being a sibling of to actually being carers for this beautiful person. I want to say for over two and a half years, I could not get the word autism out of my head. So much so that I've often found myself saying the word autistic and autism to myself so many times in nearly every hour. And often I would dream about autism. I dream about my son and I would dream about all of the things I read. It's really consumed my life. When I first suspected my son was autistic, um, it's actually inaccurate to say that because I thought he had a developmental delay, but I never really thought it was autism. I was fooled. My John's um, John's John was initially uh, assessed for speech therapy, and the most important thing I have to say about that is that um, the speech therapist who was assessing John, she found that the child had a lot of stereotypical behaviours, a lot of repetitive behaviours. And that there was a lack of imagination in his play and the fact that he was nonverbal, the fact that he was engaging in what's called idiopathic toe walking or walking on his toes. These were all indicators of her that she should red flag autism. And I was in denial. I didn't think. But who was I to not to, to know better? I just, I, you kind of hope, don't you? You kind of hope that it's just a developmental delay, that it's, it's not autism. And I would stay up all night going through symptom after symptom after symptom and lists and even counting up the, le the number of symptoms I believed my child had and wondering would that be enough to not qualify John or not qualify John. And of course, I think I would often cheat and mark him down as less and I would still find that my child actually had met enough marks to, to be considered autistic but at times he wouldn't so I was really unsure of what my child was and time was was going on precious time was was marching on we were we were wrongly advised that uh, a, a public um, health system diagnosis was, 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 was more important than a, a private assessment. 
and we were kind of waiting. I tried to go to my my doctor and my doctor was my John's original doctor. We had to change because uh, they had no knowledge of autism and they uh, didn't take it seriously enough to find him a pediatrician or a or a, a, a person, you know, you know, an audiologist, isn't that it? And um, they wouldn't uh, find him a physiotherapist. They would give me none of these things. And they never even asked me, did I have health insurance, which I do have for John. Um, in the absence of finding a decent paediatrician, clinical psychologist, or I would say a knowledgeable physician, I had to change uh, that physician for John and the physician we have for John now is so fantastic and I can't say enough good about that physician. Um, so for a long time we just lacked expertise to give us experts to offer us uh, the services that John needed so we could actually confirm more about his uh, clinical presentation. Um, so my hypothesis kept on flying from from one to another. Don't forget, I, I, I'm not a, a clinical psychologist. And I can assure you, it requires not just a person that calls himself a psychologist or a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapist. It requires people who are specifically trained in uh, in, in child clinical psychology and in um, pediatrics to understand if the child qualifies for this diagnosis. Um, by being told to wait all we were doing is developing and collecting more anxiety and our nerves could not stomach that. Our child was not being provided with uh, that critical diagnosis and clinical picture in order to be able to have his needs met. Come nine months later, nine very painful months, it was actually in February I said to myself, that's it, I'm going to get my child privately assessed. And then something very interpolating happened, COVID-19 lockdown, and there was no way of getting my child assessed. So for at least so many months after my anxiety was 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 mounting and obviously during this period i wasn't doing what I, I would be doing now which is tuning into podcasts like autism live or listening to wonderful experts like like uh, temple grandin who had autism uh, and i think her mother was advised at one stage just to throw her into an institution and forget about her uh, she refused to do that. Um, Doreen Grandpache was, was also a wonderful uh, autism expert, which I, I like to tune into. And I also love, uh, her name is Kate Wilde, and she's an author S, and she works in the Sunrise Programme, and her understanding of autism is absolutely amazing. Uh, nor was I, like, obviously measuring up the pros and the cons of the various therapies out there, like occupational therapy, music therapy, speech therapy, Sunrise program therapy, behavioural therapy, this was obviously an afterthought to if my son I thought was autistic or not. I was so interested in diagnostics, symptoms and you could say I also did a T-tour because I love knowing the history of things so I was really interested in the history of autism. 
Now, let's just deep dive into the history of autism in order to understand what we're talking about in a more succinct way. Once autism was perceived as a form of schizophrenia, and later it was uh, perceived as a product of refrigerator mothers. Uh, these points of view are rubbish. That's all I can say about that. But it actually shows you how psychiatry cannot just get it wrong, or psychology cannot get it wrong, and that you know we should take things. We shouldn't take things at face value. But they can get things terribly, terribly wrong. And one of the things that uh, we like to say is new news is that we now know that autism is a spectrum. The, I, I, I really believe that it was always known that autism was a spectrum. Um, if, if they didn't know in the 40s that autism was a spectrum in the 30s, then how was Hans Asperger deciding which autistic child was too autistic to uh, live uh, and then which autistic child was intelligent enough and functional enough to be worthy of living in, 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 and that's what the system, that's what the, um, that's what he was working in, in terms of Nazi psychiatry at that time. I keep seeing in my mind's eye for so, so long, the movie was called, um, it's called, uh, it's with Richard Dreyfus and it's, it's a, a movie that concerns a elective mute child who witnesses a murder and it's called Silent Fall. And um, basically, Richard Dreyfus explains to a student, because in that movie, he's a psychiatrist, and he briefly explains to his uh, student a brief history of autism he says but before that he asks the student uh, what is autism and the student wanting to obviously impress upon her professor that she's quite a bright intelligent girl she says in a very robotical voice autism is a pervasive developmental disorder in which a cocoon forms around the child leaving him or her trapped in his or her own world and I'm actually not reading that when I'm saying this to you now. I actually have that quote so deeply entrenched into my mind for the past 20 years. Never did I know that I would actually be thinking so, so deeply about what does that mean to my son? Does it, is he really trapped in his own world? Is it a communication disorder and can he not reach us? And is that what it is? It's a, an entrapment from reality, or is it so much more? I would so often recite and still do that definition. I would think about everything to do with that definition and how it applied to my child. Eventually, and in hindsight, to our great relief, our child was diagnosed with autism. And what I mean by that specifically is that at least it alleviated our worry 
either which way or not he was. We decided how we could embrace autism, how we could embrace our son's community and his uh, neurodiversity was for us as a family to research as much as we could and of course to read up about autism. I watched with my son the Australian stop-motion adult animated psychological drama. This was made in 2009 and it was called Max and Mary and it stars one of my favourite actors who's now dead, Philip Seymour Hoffman. In the movie Max's psychiatrist diagnoses him with intellectual disability and Asperger's syndrome. The film introduced me to the sensory needs the sensory sensitivities, the communication and interpersonal difficulties of other autistic people. And it offered me what I would call insight into what I was also experiencing with John, my son. In the movie, we learn of Max, who is a Jewish New Yorker and refugee of the Nazi Holocaust, who as a pen pal called Mary from Australia. Who is lonely and requires friendship. So we later learn that um, when Max is diagnosed with both what you call a co-occurring condition, he has intellectual disability, OCD, he's, he's very obsessive, obsessionally compulsive, and this of course is a neurotic disorder, and he has Asperger's syndrome, but he is also able to work a job and he makes a living. He likes to call himself an Aspie for short. He warmly embraces his neurodiverse, atypical identity uh, because he believes that's who he is. He says he likes being an Aspie. In the post-diagnostic phase of my child's, um, well, I mean, the after phase of me knowing that he was an autistic person, my attention would zoom into therapeutic methods for interpreting, understanding, working with autism. Intervention has been very absent from the public system for our child. We felt as parents an urgent need to learn everything we could about the autistic spectrum. This would we hoped be the best way we could uh, do for our child was to at least be for him a source of knowledgeable resource. And um, by that we would learn about autism hopefully that would inform how we would uh, relate in hopefully a better way to our child. We'd read about ABA books and we listen to podcasts and we just try to watch the odd YouTube video and figure out strategies and technologies for the various situations which arise when being a carer. So I also fixated my attention on the word Asperger and I realized that it obviously comes from Hans Asperger, the psychiatrist, and I found myself a good book about Hans Asperger called Asperger's Children, The Origins of Autism in Nazi Vienna. This is written by Edith Schaeffer. You don't have to read all of it. 
if you read about 35% of it, which is re roughly what I've gotten to, and I'm not really, I'm not really desiring to read much more. It's like going around in a, in a circle again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And it's obviously the same thing going on. And that is that Hans Asperger was basically an intricate part of Nazi psychiatry. And he was deciding with his cronies which child could live and which child or adult or adolescent would die. Um, I read about how, in contrast, so how previous to Hitler um, being elected, and this is post-World War Vienna, World War One Vienna, in the 1920s, I would read about how disciplines like child and adolescent psychiatry was blooming child psychology and social care. And they were adopting an ultra-compassionate philosophy and system of care towards the most vulnerable and the most needy in society. And this was, of course, the Vienna, as we know, that would have would father the wonderful um, psychoanalytical discipline and people like Sigmund Freud for NZ, Melanie Klein. Um, they all came out of uh, Freud's legacy, uh, Reich and so on. Uh, the reasons why child and adolescent psychoanalysis theory and practice would have to um, basically move to London and specifically Tavistock Clinic is because Sigmund Freud and Anna Freud had to go as refugees to England. And from Anna Freud and the Tavistock Clinic, we have crucial insight into child psychology and their inner world. Because, of course, the psychoanalysis makes use of which uh, mainstream psychology doesn't make any use of is their knowledge of and study of the unconscious mind and the unconscious systems. The id, the ego and the superego, the conscious mind, the pre-conscious mind and the unconscious mind, which is not revealed through empirical research. So you could say that over and beyond uh, empirical, observational, experimental research, there's also the, the unconscious knowledge, which has to be gained and acquired in a different manner, such as interpreting dreams, uh, hypnosis, hypnotherapy, and of course, free association and allowing the patient to talk and trying to interpret slips of the tongue and jokes, because these are all manifestations of the unconscious mind and symptoms also. They are symptoms like neurotic symptoms, obsessions, and so on, and phobias. These are also manifestations of the unconscious mind. With psychoanalysts and psychiatrists, such as the aforementioned Anna Freud, John Bowlby, Melanie Klein, and Margaret Maller, the development of functional and dysfunctional mm -hmm. child-parent attachments were identified. And of course, this is new information at that time. This information displays to us that in the fields of psychology, psychoanalysis, and social care, there are people who have a sincere and empathic desire to understand the origins of both psychopathology and developmental disorder. Let me bring this all back to Hans Asperger. 
by mentioning this figure with reference to the book Asperger's Children, we can ask very relevant questions like why did social care, psychology, child and adolescent psychiatry bloom as a field with ultra-benevolent attentions and become a decade later consumed in ableist, fascist, anti-human, Nazi, murderous ideology? For the same reason the Freudian dynasty had to move from Vienna to London is because of the Nazi system of what it was. The Nazi system of psychiatry and politics. Um, <coughs> Nazi psychiatry specifically um, with experts such as autism experts such as Hans Asperger. Uh, basically the autistic child that was seen to have good mentations and good IQ that's good intelligent quotient, well, he would definitely put them on the saved list. Those that would go down the levels, they were they were going to be injected and killed or maybe sent to um, a holding bay like at the back of a truck and, and murdered with carbon monoxide. The Nazi system drew from the eugenicist philosophy. Now, the eugenicist philosophy belongs to the 19th century. These practices and scientific outlook, they would have originated in the 19th century. From there, you have the likes of Lombroso's uh, theory of the natural born criminal idea that criminals are born, not made. The idea that some people racially are more superior than others and therefore so also people who are uh, physically and mentally disabled, they're seen as life unworthy of life. A terrible phase, but <coughs> this is what they were working from. It meant that survival was becoming less possible for people of different races that were listed as not being acceptable to the Nazi regime and also the physically and mentally disabled. And extermination of these people was more likely. And this includes gypsies, Jehovah Witnesses, physically and mentally disabled, as I said before, homosexuals, Slavs, <coughs> Jews and much, much more. The extermination of these groups of people <coughs> doesn't begin <coughs> with Auschwitz, Zyklon B, this is much later, so forget that. Uh, it begins with an attempt at the, eradic the eradication of the physically and mentally disabled. Their killers were not simply Gestapo, SS, their killers were psychiatrists and nurses, people entrusted with the care of these vulnerable people, and of course administrators and bureaucrats. They were what was behind the Holocaust and it's also bureaucrats and administrators which is behind the denial of resources of care and resources of treatment for autistic people to this present day and uh, if you follow the um, the writings of Hannah Arendt who uh, basically wrote about the, mon the mundane nature of evil and she would have described that that a archetypal bureaucrat as a clown, an ordinary clown, i.e. Eichmann. And um, the banality of evil is what she is renowned for saying and describing. So it's pen pushers, the people who are saying this is the procedure, that's the procedure, and they're very angry retentive and very tight, and they make callous decisions about your child if your child's school is allowed to be resourced or not, 
if your child is allowed one-on-one support or not, if your child is even allowed to be an edu- to have an education or can we deny it for another year or another year and another year and if your child is allowed to get access to therapy or not, even though the child has a disability. Uh, they're all pen pushers and bureaucrats and administrators. They think they're not so cause, just making a decision. They don't think that they have anything to do with evil. Neither did Eichmann believe that he had anything to do with evil. He was just following procedure. He was just following order. Of course, he was also the author of the final solution. So uh, people who hold those powers within offices and are signed off documents and they're all about documents, documents, documents and rules and rules and rules. They're as capable of, and they can do much more harm than the actual person that's handling the uh, the um, box of Zyklon B and, admit, and, put into a, and put it into a chamber. They're as uh, harmful as the person with a machine gun that's, uh, that's basically discharging the bullets into arm, into people who aren't armed. Um, you may say that nowadays the um, the administrators, the bureaucrats, are not killing uh, disabled people or um, that are physically and mentally disabled. Um, they're not, but they're able to uh, exact their own level of sadism, their own level of evil, in their own way, in their own petite way, which is to say that they can decide which child they don't like or which area they don't like where they can just keep back the resources, they can use their pettiness to and their uh, their basic their basic uh, petite minds, and they can basically decide uh, which child is too autistic for the autistic uh, unit, and which child deserves to be even more and more excluded, because ableism has not disappeared just because the 21st century is here and a liberal uh, agenda of equality has taken over. This desire to deal with the physically and mentally ill people in a cruel fashion is not isolated in history to the uh, Nazis. That would be absolutely absurd to believe that. Um, In America in the early 20th century, there was avid practicing of sterilizations on the mentally and physically disabled and mentally ill in the late 1800s and 1900s. People such as Down syndromes could not reproduce, for example, because they were sterilized. The idea that there was a hierarchy of superior people was prevalent throughout the Western world. For example, let me talk to you about the German legacy in Namibia way before the Nazis were in power. I'm talking about the German Empire when it colonialized Namibia and they committed a, a genocide from the year from the years of 1904 to 1908 against the ethnic Her- Herero people, Namakwa people and the San people. These are ethnic tribal people. Um, this genocide was partly funded by a scientific curiosity. The skills, well, we could call it, actually, let's just be accurate and call it a pseudo-scientific curiosity. The skulls of, the, so basically, 
let's just get this right, the uh, Herero people would have been invited into the, into the churches where they were killed. And they would have been decapitated and their skulls of the Herero and Nama people were sent to German universities um, and kept there where phrenologists, these are people who study the skull, they study what they would believe was the conformation of the skull and they thought they could deduce from the conformation of skulls a person's mental faculty and traits of character. Their bid was to prove through research that Western European people are superior and naturally this was discredited in time as pseudo-scientific. And it was this pseudo-scientific rationale that formed the basis of Nazi psychiatry and Nazi medicine. And it was this reasoning and logic which Hans Asperger worked in. And there's no need for us, therefore, to say that Hans Asperger was nothing else but a Nazi, even though he didn't have Nazi membership. He was still working in the Nazi system and he was still signing off who could live and who could die and still taking a paycheck from them. So, no, his legacy should be tarnished. He should be seen as a disgusting human being who had no love or no care for vulnerable people. He was just basically another pen pusher, which I've talked about, and we still have pen pushers to this day. Another pen pusher, another bureaucrat who decided who could live, who could die, who couldn't progress, and who couldn't regress, who can who can basically develop and who can be left behind. Which is more like what we have going on now. It's not so much who can live, who can die, but who can progress and who can regress, who can develop and who can be allowed to be touched, kicked to touch, because the system will pretend on the outside to care, just like the Nazis pretended to care about the lives of the physically and disabled people, especially to their relatives who were concerned about their health and well-being, and they would give an asinine excuse of what happens to them. Well, also, parents of children with special needs are given asinine excuses for why, in a time of unprecedented resources, unprecedented wealth, uh, their children are denied access to vital services such as education and therapeutic intervention and why indeed some children are even expelled from preschools and educational facilities even though they're not even, um, they're just infants and children and vulnerable people indeed with, with a reduced mental capacity which actually does have the, the capacity and ability to develop with prop appropriate proper care and intervention. We may believe that Hans Asperger was simply qualifying the condition of autism and setting out its symptomology. Of course that's nonsense. Asperger was working alongside murderers. His murderous colleagues who were outlining the policies. I don't want to, to, to um to, to go into detail about this because I found it repetitive. <coughs> and anyway, <coughs> what Nazi psychiatry sought to define in their terms is what life was worthy to live and what life was not worthy to live. Um, life that was worthy would be rehabilitated by the Reich, whilst life that was unworthy would, they, it would be starved to death or experimented on. Uh, don't think this is news. As per, you know, we, we all know of the infamous legacy that Mengele left behind. 
experimenting in Auschwitz on so many vulnerable people. Remember the twin dwarf experimentations he did on, on Jewish dwarfs. Life that was deemed unworthy of life was also sterilized or, or they were given lethal injections. So that you know <coughs> what we're talking about specifically is Action T4 and you can definitely research that. Um, and you can read a self-published book which kind of it's very much so like a diatribe so you, if you're looking for something that's um, balanced and objective it may not be the best book to read but if you want excellent um, material that's primary source then you should read Lenny Lappin's um, uh, Mass Words and White Coast from Auschwitz to, uh, to uh, Harvard um, but again as I said it's also very quarrelous and there's not much uh, balance in his writing I hope I'm more balanced um, you basically can say that Acteon T4 resulted in the murder of 300,000 people and uh, Hans Berger, Hans Asperger definitely made cases for level one autistics, function autistics. He impressed upon the system their uh, capabilities and their cognitive capacities. They may not be social, but they have great capacities, which he was saying, well, you know what, we need to, to, to make these, to allow these people to live. Whilst what we call moderate to severe autistic people, they were passed over to the murderous regime. Um, so basically you can imagine that disciplines like social work, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, child and adolescent psychiatry, it suffered so badly uh, in, in these times. The father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, basically left Vienna, Austria. Okay, I'll tell you the story of uh, how that came about. So let me just look at what I've written down here and make sure that I don't repeat what I, I've written. So I'm now talking, uh, uh, not, I'm not reading, I'm actually talking, uh, so I'll tell you what happened. Uh, Freud and his family were put under house arrest by the SS. This is something I never forgot. I remember reading and hearing about this in my History of Madness and the Discovery of the Unconscious class, which I was taught in Dublin Business School. And basically... Um, the House of Commons in London had to fight uh, for his survival. They voted to that Freud would be a, a refugee, and the SS handed him, handed Freud uh, a statement that he had to sign, and it basically entailed the fact that he was well treated by the SS. So Freud signed the document, Sigmund Freud. But he wasn't just capitulating about a little bit of Freudian wit, so underneath he wrote, P.S. I heartily recommend the SS to anyone, which I, which I find is, you know, typical of the man's brilliant, brilliant, sharp wit. Tragically, 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 and so, so sadly, and I have to say, uh, his aunts were not so lucky, Freud's aunts. They were, they were not granted any refugee status. They were... Uh, sent off to the death camps and they were the first to be called out when they were there from all the masses of people and they were placed against the wall and they were shot dead. Now if I go back to why he ended up in London, well that's why, 
but if we, we, we just go back to Hans Asperger, it just it, it's uh, there's no there's no real point in, in me reading more and more about that book. I I, I know very well that uh, Hans Asperger was deeply deeply involved in the Nazi system of psychi of uh, psychiatry, and uh, and that's um, he is one of the thinkers uh, and that was involved in in discovering what autism was. He was an early pioneer figure, um, but he also belongs in that um, kind of title that Lenny Lappin gives of mass murders in white coats. Um, he was definitely part of the system. Now you might think, uh, well, only Nazi psychiatry is bad. No, psychiatry has a terrible legacy wherever you go. Um, and if we talk about the um, USA, well, on South America, so many um, Nazis uh, who were mass murderers ended up courtesy of the Roman Catholic Church and the Rathlines, they ended up, because they facilitated the Rathlines, these Nazis, uh, high-ranking Nazis, these mass murderers ended up in these countries such as Chile, Uruguay and Argentina and Brazil. Uh, whilst others like Hans Asperger, well, he was just allowed to get on with it. You know, he continued working as a psychiatrist in Germany. And he died in 1980. I wonder, do you, do you wonder um, why 300,000 people who were <coughs> physically and, and mentally disabled were killed and not more. I certainly didn't when I heard that figure as a young man. Um, and the only reason why I ask you that is because I want to know, are you aware of why these killings stopped? Um, because Acteon 4 as a policy, um, it was greeted with public outrage and uh, protests, which were not available for the Jews. And so... Acteon 4, basically, it stopped its um, murderous practices. The place of um, Acteon 4 in 19th century philosophical science um, is there with the practices of sterilization in, psychiat in psychiatric facilities across the USA in the er uh, late 1900s and early. Uh, yeah, in the in the early nineteen hundreds and the basically the late eighteenth nineteenth century and early nineteen hundreds. Um, I'm getting tired, so through my tiredness, uh, I might just be a little bit inaccurate uh, in terms of what I just said there. But yeah, it's definitely just to recall a nineteenth century philosophy and the sterilizations were rampant in America in the early nineteen hundreds. Many um, German psychiatrists of the Nazi persuasion who were uh, in Action T4, and this is this is clearly demonstrated in, in that Lenny Lappin's book. Just in case you think that it, it's not like heavily heavily researched, he gets original documents. He clearly understands um, German, and he um, he offers primary sources of what they did, what they got up to, and how they ended up in different uh, institutions throughout America, practicing the trade of psychiatry and offering 
infamous abuse of therapies and treatments such as lobotomies and so on and so forth and killing patients even in some situations. You might uh, find it no, hard, no way hard to believe that the history of autism is uh, patchy. That's because we don't even have a word for autism after, sorry, before the 20th century. It had to be coined. So it's hard to access unless you're a clinical psychologist and you're, you're going back into the prism of history and you're actually able, through your own uh, sort of sharp clinical understanding of this condition to be able to say, well, which person in, in back then was autistic or showing signs? And that's how you could possibly create an enriched history of autism, which I haven't come across. Uh, our society has a choice to be outrightly cruel to autistic people, which Western um, society is guilty of. Don't be deluded just because we're living in a liberal times that there isn't outright cruelty towards autistic people and vulnerable people and disabled people. No, it's going on. So we have that, that uh, choice to be on that spectrum with the Nazis um, where we are uh, playing lip service to the existing ideology which is inclusivity but we're actually in reality being ableist and being as sadistic and as hurtful as we legally can. Don't forget the Nazi German psychiatrists had the legal, um, le legal ability at that time during the Nazi regime to legally uh, kill people without the Nazi, uh, the Nazi um, system of law to actually say, you know, what, what you've done is uh, illegal. So the social workers and the, uh, the, the people in charge of government departments who are denying um, children and adolescents the capacity to access the resources that they're legally entitled to, they're on that spectrum of cruelty alongside teachers that are uh, you know being basically ignorant and downright abusive to autistic people and I have evidence that's very well researched of that going on which I will talk to uh, as this podcast progresses if you think only totalitarian regimes such as the Soviet Cuban and Nazi psychiatry that they have the monopoly on cruelty to the most vulnerable members of society with them, you're wrong if you think that schools, hospitals, institutions, especially in the West, are no longer cruel and abusive to the physically and mentally ill. If you perceive that the nurse ratchet types are no longer in the educational sector, if you perceive that they're no longer in the care sector, uh, intimidating the hell out of the most vulnerable members of our society, then you must keep listening and it'll help you to wake up again. Suffice to say, it is indeed apparent that the masses live in a world of false generalizations and beliefs, such as that cruelty to children who are most vulnerable, such as non-verbal autistic children and Down syndrome people, um, that this has magically disappeared with the enlightened era that we're now living in, which is, uh, which is dominated by humanistic philosophy uh, being turned to reality and practices such as the prohibition of corporal punishment 
and its subsequent illegality throughout the Western world. But this has not inoculated cruelty from existing and sadism from existing towards the most vulnerable members of society. So let's keep that in mind. As parents of autistic children, just like parents of neurotypically developing children, our biggest fear, or at least amongst them, what I mean by amongst them, I, I mean like we have a hive of fears about our, ch our children, and that's that they would be mistreated and abused. That's a huge fear. This pattern of abuse in the history of autism has been identified. Commentators assessing the history of autism usually do not dig deep because the word and the condition was really only identified in the 1940s by psychiatrists. In such articles, the world of autism seems not to exist prior to this time period. So I've said that before, but I think I need to say that again in order to, to be able to get that enmeshed into your mind. Now let me just offer a history of autism, which I only saw in that movie with Richard Dreyfuss, which was called Silent Fall. Now, uh, it, it, I've also seen other movies about autism, but, but it, did, it, it did stick with me. And this, I've, I've not been able to allocate the first part of uh, this sort of micro-history. So let me just say this to you. This is Richard Dreyfuss talking, and I've recalled it in my mind. This is him talking. He says, 2,000 years ago, autistics were treated by certain cultures as gods. 500 years ago, they were burnt at the stake. Nowadays, we treat them with drugs and we treat them with therapy. That's what he said. And, you know, I basically remember that, you know, like as if it was tomorrow. And I watched that 25 years ago as a young man. And I'm not the kind of person that goes around remembering things. I don't have a photographic memory, far from it. And I'm now, I've obviously taught and churned it through. What does that mean? On the last point, um, no, that we, so we have three sentences there and, I, and uh, I wonder about every one of them. What do I wonder about? I have absolutely no clue what culture he's talking about. What was that culture? I'm sure if I emailed him, I wouldn't get a response. I want to know, what was that culture? What, what, what era did they belong to where they actually taught autistic people? And how did they know they were autistic people to begin with? And how do we know they were treated and perceived to be gods? And if they were perceived to be gods, how were they treated as gods? And how did people react to them? I have no idea. I won't speculate further. Regarding the second point, about autistics being uh, perceived as witches or sorcerers or killed. That doesn't surprise me. I actually just thought they were psychotic because we don't even know. I, I want to know how does he know that they these people he's talking about were, were autistics. What I understood was that it was psychotic people that were mainly perceived as being uh, witches, heretics and sorcerers and that because they were terribly uh, unable to... Uh, to um they were basically able they basically had no problems um put themselves at the stake they wouldn't um they wouldn't do what was required what was required of them was to admit oh yeah i'm a witch and or or her or a sorcerer and that would that would save their life okay 
But psychotic people were, are not capable of doing that. Now, were they autistic? I don't know. I don't have the, the, the clinical expertise to know that. Um, what we can safely say is that autistic people to this very day, um, they're perceived as having something to do with the supernatural by certain groups of people. Um, to this day, we have... I've come across a Danish cult. I've come across the children of God. And how they treated autistic people was to regard them as possessed. And what do you do with possessed people? You give them an exorcism. Which must be absolutely traumatising for any autistic child to have to endure. Can you imagine an autistic child having a bunch of, uh, of overly zealous, religiously fanatic people... Uh, talking in tongues and performing an exorcism on a on a poor autistic child. I think that's absolutely abominable. And another example in the long list, uh, long history of examples of mental, uh, of, 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 of madness, of, the, of, uh, of religious madness. I've identified Christian cults and sects alike who perceive the cause of autism as being attributable to possession. Uh, just as the, in, the psychosis was also seen and mental illness has been per, perceived in the Middle Ages as being uh, to possession. Actually, before the 5th century uh, BC, before Hippocrates, uh, mental illness was perceived as being uh, to do with uh, evil spirits. The perceived treatment for such a condition by such groups, of course, didn't involve medicine, didn't involve therapy, just exorcism. Yeah. So we treat people in the present age. It's not what he was talking about with therapy and with with drugs. Uh, what I would say to to, you to the, is that it's conceited to think that's the best way to treat an autistic person. It's just what we know now. The same way in in the in the history of um, of of uh, mental illness, we'd have thought it was okay to use restraints. To treat people. Um, the treatment disorder and etiology of psychopathology and developmental disorders varies throughout the centuries and even the decades. So I talked about the fifth century before Christ and only then the etiology of mental illness becomes more and more enriched and we have uh, a discourse against the prevailing paradigm which is that it's supernaturally uh, determined. Instead, um, we're looking there for organic um, causes, organic determinism for these, these diseases and they're divided into a spectrum of mild, moderate and severe. That is thanks to Hippocrates and to the knowledge of him as a Greek philosopher because Latin and Greek books were not read and knowledge was was basically kept to the monasteries <coughs> in the Middle Ages medicine turned to crap and um, it didn't develop it was only developing in fairness in the Arab world because they were they were going through a blooming period but not in the West and so the etiology of mental illness again turned to the supernatural dimension so basically, there wasn't state hospitals, there wasn't uh, mental institutions uh, in the Middle Ages. What you had there was the mentally ill were treated in Christendom either by the family or by the monasteries. 
Um, I, you know, mental illness is, is, is also, in some ways, very subjective and very much so determined on the spirit of the time. So you could have had lycanthropy, which is to do with lupine, uh, to do with werewolves. That was a, a described as a clinical example of mental illness in the Middle Ages. That doesn't exist now. Uh, history, you might would also recall the word in the in the ancient Greek time, the word hysteron, and that would be the Greek word for hysteria. And the cause of hysteria um, was very much so to do with it was explained in terms of women's biology. It was hysteron means the wandering of the of the womb. Again, that's not an etiology or a, uh, that we would uh, avail of today. In 1851, there was an American physician uh, called Cartwright, and he described a very peculiar condition called drapetomania. Now, he was working as a professor of psychiatry in Louisiana. That's important to say, because he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a nobody. And his wonderful, uh, and I mean that sarcastically, his wonderful... Uh, contribution was to describe drapetomania and he hypothesized that enslaved Africans who tried to free themselves from slavery were actually suffering from drapetomania. We obviously have disbanded this type of mental illness. In, in the 1930s, in uh, a, another peculiar type of schizophrenia was, um, was, was, was developed, don't forget, at that time um, it was, autism was perceived as a type of childhood schizophrenia. Well, this type of schizophrenia I'm talking about now in the 1930s was described in patients who actually showed no symptoms of schizophrenia or psychotic disorder. So they're schizophrenic and they're psychotic, even though they don't have any visual hallucinations, even though they don't have any delusions, even though they don't have delusions of grandeur, they don't have any, any theodicy, or they believe they're, they're a god or they're something supernatural. So they're actually not displaying um, that sort of uh, schizophrenic condition, that split mind, um, splitting the mind, um, which is a formula that Carl Gustav Jung used, don't forget the word schizophrenia, if we divide it, it comes from, it's, a, it's sort of a, a word that's joined together from the Latin and the Greek, schiz, which means split, and phrenic, which means mind. Well, if you don't have any of these conditions, uh, it's still with wonderful psychiatrists like Andrei Shevchensky and um, Dr. Grunia, which is the, the original um, author of this condition, Dr. Grunia Sukareva in the uh, 1930s, of course, come 1960, another brilliant group of psychologists called uh, Dr. Andrei Shevchensky was still uh, using this wonderful type of uh, schizophrenia. Um, it's called sluggish schizophrenia. The only problem with such schizophrenia is that it didn't seem to um, spread beyond a certain geographical area. Maybe uh, the condition wasn't um, transferable. So it was sadly only people from the USSR and the Eastern Bloc that had uh, sluggish schizophrenia. I don't know why it didn't come to Ireland. The diagnosis of sluggish schizophrenia, um, basically it was wonderful for... Um, making sure that p people would spend a long time in the psychoshka or the, psych uh, the psychiatric wards of the Soviet Union. Um, it would also deprive that person who was diagnosed with sluggish schizophrenia with civic rights. 
credibility and employability. But it was uh, it was a mental illness that was um, basically uh, the KGB and the Communist Party wanted that mental illness to be to be developed, and why not? So basically, that's what you could do with political dissidents and writers who wrote books that uh, and artists who who created works of arts and academic editions. Um, if they did things that the communist system didn't like, and the communist system can be very contrary, so it could be putting the odd sentence out of place. Whoever was regarded as a dissident or was a person that was not going uh, with the Soviet socialist utopia, they could end up in the Saikushka. And the reason was uh, because they were exhibiting signs of um, of the sluggish schizophrenia. And the reason why they didn't end up in... Um, in the gulags is because after Stalin you have the Taw, you have Khrushchev, so uh, they wanted to, you know, not um, put all their intellectual killers into the Siberia. Um, so it was, it was definitely useful for putting troublesome people away. So again, you can see how um, mental illness as a construct is very good at victimising uh, targeted groups. Um, we see that <coughs> mental illness is certainly a, con a social construct and that it evolves uh, around time. And of course, it creates abuse throughout history, throughout the spectrum of history. And that's why it's so useful to, to know all these things. Uh, whilst we will, will return eventually to discussing about autism, we learned thus far that psychiatry and psychology are almost certainly a more subjective and less accurate science. But what we have is what we should work with. And I'll tell you why we should work with that and, and, not, uh, and not go mad, as they say. Um, because the treatment of vulnerable people requires us to be as objective and as scientific as we can, even if, uh, even if sometimes we really do lack uh, that ability to be as objective as we can. Because then again, we're only working with the knowledge base that we have at any given time. The fact that we didn't have words for autism uh, makes, makes the understanding of it uh, so much more harder. And you, you can wonder how accurate are we? Um, the developmental disorder was, was originally caused by... So this is just the nonsense that uh, we were led to believe by people like Hanner, um that it was basically refrigerator mothers that caused autism because they basically had poor attachments to their children. Of course, their children were not capable of showing affection. This is a lie. It's not true. Autistic children can be very, very affectionate. And believe me, their mothers can be extremely affectionate to them because their child they know needs that love. Like, you could argue that finger pointing at mothers as the primary cause of psychological disorder was not unheard of in psychology, psychoanalysis. Um, and, you know, you could say that Freud was guilty of that with the Oedipal complex, marrying conditions like neurosis, anxiety, obsessional complexes, psychotic disorders, perversion, schizophrenia, manic depression, all to the figure of the mother and how the individual negotiated the Oedipus complex. But I think he's basically a cheap target. Um, and um, that you could defend Freud and say that 
whilst the psychiatry was not about listening to patients, about observing them and giving them drugs or observing them and um, and basically interring them in, in institutions. Uh, Freud did something which the world of psychiatry learned from, and and his method was to treat people in a more intimate way, instead of, as opposed to the kind of cold way that psychiatry developed from, which was purely descriptive and observational. The psychiatrist would ask a few questions and walk away and prescribe them drugs and then he would read through all the notes that the nurses had made about what the psychiatrist or what the patient was doing, what times they would wake up, were they, um, uh, uh, were they, how was their moods and so on. Instead, Freud would invite his patients to talk in a world, in this world that allowed mental patients, well, I should say mental patients when in psychiatric wards they were restrained and they were the recipients of rather abusive therapy such as ECT, lobotomy and straitjacketing. Um, Freud allowed people with what you call we could call everyday matters such as OCD, phobias and panic disorders in homely environments such as his clinic. I say you could also say maybe he worked from home in his own, in his own little room. Um, he'd invite his neurotic patients who are obviously, you know, and the chief mechanism of um, neurosis is repression. Uh, so basically he was allowing housewives and so on um, to talk uh, using the revolutionary method of the time, which was free association. Um, psychiatry never really did this until the likes of Ronald Day Lang in the 70s and 60s started to um, work in institutional psychiatric environments. And he was very, very interesting, this Scottish psychiatrist, because he was revolutionary at the time. And he wanted to work with the most severely mentally ill people and not just let them kind of progress into their madness. And, and uh, basically, the world of autism, the world of the nonverbal autistic child is crying out for trained therapists who are willing to intensely and sincerely understand their subjects, just like Freud was willing to do so and just like Ronald da David Lang was. Let me just explain what I mean by that so that you're not lost, that my, my uh, thinking is not lost in translation. Ronald David Lang... He would go to where the most severely psychiatrically disturbed patients were in the hospital. And they could be smashing windows, um, biting themselves, banging against the wall and so on. And he would he would basically engage with them. And what he he saw one patient who was getting their shitting on the floor and pissing the floor and getting the shit and smearing it all over the walls. And he, he said to the nurse, have you ever decided to give this patient painting, paint to paint with? And he said, no. Well, get him this. So the patient was uh, given um, paint and the patient became uh, an artist, a professional artist. So 
basically you must recognize the humanity of your patient or your client regardless of how dehumanized you may feel that they appear to be freud taught the world of mental health workers he taught them that the previously unknown can with time reveal itself just as the unconscious can be made conscious so too can the world of the non-verbal child be made known to us the world of caring for vulnerable people were, were taught the value of empathy and the deep value of understanding the patient's articulations and communications and that's what we must be if you read kate wilde's book she she basically has written two books and you can look them up on um on kindle um you'll find the titles anyways from the sunrise program she is teaching us parents and those who are who would care to read her work and i, I really would love to see educators and carers read her work that they the the um philosophy that we should adopt especially with non-verbal autistic children is that we are to be detectives doing detective work in order to figure out what this child is trying to tell us with their mysterious and i mean really mysterious symptoms unfortunately undoubtedly the world of care for autistic people is enriched when we take in Sigmund Freud's legacy. And then let me just say, as a carer of autistic children, I'm not, and I feel guilty for being of this, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a pediatrician, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a child psychologist, a speech therapist, a dietitian, an SMA, an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, uh, I'm not a disability rights activist, all rolled into one human being, but I'm, 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 I'm just human. Uh, and I'm a human being and that's all and with the serious lack of resources that are out there this may seem incredibly disappointing that I actually lack superpowers to change my child's life albeit for the better but perhaps I am perhaps as parents of autistic children we perform the miracles that the resources simply have failed to provide for us as frustrating raw and real as that may sound we still owe it to ourselves to remain as positive in our outlook as we possibly can. Perhaps we are therapists, doctors, educators, all in one for our child. Perhaps with a stronger inner connection to our intuitions, we do know how to be the best helpers for our beloved atypical children. My optimism and my positivity is not unfounded. For example, so much of what Freud said is lost in translation. And this is a fact that Bruno Bettelheim tried to address. He informs those who care to know what Sigmund Freud really intended um, psychoanalysis to be. Psychoanalysis he intended to be it, it was a method of healing people through love. And this is actually his definition, Freud's definition of what psychoanalysis is. Uh, uh, there is much mention of love in Freud's original writings but this message is literally lost and you might say why well Strachey was his translator and his translator used too much Latin and medical terms and the real humanity and the softness and the kindness of his work was lost in translation 
I humbly believe as parents of autistic children, we can offer deep love to our child. And maybe if this approach is sincere, it's in and of itself a type of earthly intervention. And it's a type of the most uh, profound intervention, the love of a parent for their child. Parents, if the child is so lucky, the plural to exist. As you've already learned, the early description of autism suffered from a poor definition of what it was. Commentators in this present age believe that they have discovered something new that autism is a spectrum. It's not new. If it was new, then Hansberger wouldn't have known the diversity of autism and therefore decide who he wanted to save and who he didn't want to save. I know I said that, but I want to say it again, just to show you that sometimes what we perceive as being a novelty, a new way of looking at things, is just propaganda. Uh, and basically the propaganda of today is that we have uh, now developed so much more knowledge of what's known about autism than in the past. We see in film, film descriptions of autism, um, for example, the... Even if you just look at the movies that are made by autistic people, you'll actually discover that diversity and this wide spectrum it is. Like you look at the 1990s film Leonardo DiCaprio starred in called What's Eating Grape, Bill Gibb Grape. What you have there is a child with an intellectual disability and moderate to severe autism who's minimally verbal. And he does the who he plays in, in this film. And obviously he's a flight risk. If you watch the film, you'll see how often Leonardo DiCaprio was climbing up on top of a, a huge building where he can easily fall to his death. Whilst if you look at the autistic uh, uh, film called Atypical on Netflix, it's again, and it's sad to say that because the, the, the Atypical was made in the late 2020s, when, uh, 2019, they're in, and they should have been aware that it's preferable that people who are autistic should play autistic characters. Um, Anyway, this character is high-functioning, verbal, and college-bound, and not a flight risk, and is very, very verbal, and I would say, dare I say, very, very annoying. I, I really lost interest in Atypical, and I wouldn't, I, as a, I wouldn't recommend it uh, as a source for to learn anything fruitful from it. But uh, my point is simply that um, if you look through the films about Austin, like Rayman, uh, he's like a savant, and then you look at What's Gilbert Eaton Gilbert Brape, who is not a savant, and then you look at um, the, the movie with Richard Dreyfus about a child that's allegedly mute called Silent Fall. Well, then you can already see that it's very well known for years and years and years that autism is a spectrum. The constructs, definitions, etiology, and, de and symptoms of, of mental illness are constantly shifting, as I've told you before. Just look at the text DSM. It's now called DSM-5. It's written by the American Psychiatric uh, Association. But when I mean it's called DSM-5, that means it's went through so many different revisions because, again, they're constantly revising, they're constantly changing. That is, they, as the psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, are constantly, and statisticians, uh, they're constantly shifting the sands and constantly changing their minds about what is and what is not a mental illness. If we relate this to autism, 
it does no difference, especially if we delve deeper into the subject. The idea that autistic people were the progeny of cold mothers didn't stand up to reality. It had to be revised, and so much still has to be revised. That being said, there's one or two dogmatic truths regarding autism that we need to keep into our mind in this year of 2021, because it really is a matter of life and death. So I might appear to be critical of psychiatry and clinical psychology. No, I'm not. We need these things, and we need to work with them. And we kind of need to be a little bit more obedient to, we need to be obedient to science, because the alternative is absolutely dark. Um, the first thing we need to remind ourselves is there's no singular cause for autism and the cause of autism is not known. So we might as well forget saying that it's due, due to a multiple amount of genes because we don't even know if that's true. We, we don't even know if it's a genetic disorder. It's, it's more accurate to say we don't know the cause of autism. And this is really important because there's no causal links. And don't forget the, 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 the people who... Um, write up so-called cures they, they also make up very simplistic causes such as uh, a vaccine is what causes autism that's not even known that's just um an, a not no non-known not inaccurate statement and they're examples of hypothetical speculation so we ha we need certainty but in the absence of certainty there's so many false ideas of what it is so you have the idea there was bad parenting which is nonsense vaccines like the MMR vaccine that's not even proven the diets the diets and infections they're, they're also seen as uh, as uh, causes and um, ruthless malevolent treatments and therapies have have uh, have arisen and sermonizations as well and almost a cult-like attitude about what is autism and how it should be treated and this has caused irreparable damage to individuals. This mania, um, what has done as it has actually really hurt autistic people. Um, why do people play dumb to what are the facts and permit their precious children to engage in costly, expensive, and hazardous, and even um, health-damaging treatments that need to stop. Um, well, lots of entrepreneurs who want to make money from fake treatments and fake cures. Allow me to indulge in all the nonsensical and fake treatments that are out there in the autism world. Parents are mentally coerced and manipulated. Um, they, are sub they have a subversive relationship to facing cold fact and reality wherein they actually deploy these snake oil treatments to their unfortunate autistic children. Before I mention these treatments, let's take a quote from a leading United Nations expert on human rights, Professor Simon Baron-Cohen, who addressed the UN saying the following. People with autism, quote, account for a significant minority of the populations worldwide, yet so many 
are are being failed in so many respects end quote perhaps by the end of this podcast or other podcasts in the future that i may do uh, on autism you will also see how i have adequately demonstrated the actual reality of this quotation the autism diagnosis triggers panic in parents and i can safely say that and it, 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 it can trigger grief and, and a sense of loss or a sense of shock and trauma but I still think that parents need to wake up, smell the coffee and stay real and not embrace nonsense and not embrace myths and not embrace fiction. But let's just look at the things that are going in the wrong direction for parents whose child, whose children are being diagnosed with autism. One there's a slowness to get one's child actually diagnosed by public health officials. Two, there's an even greater painstaking wait to actually assess meaningful and scientific therapies for their autistic child at an early stage of intervention, uh, which is basically the best because of the neuroplasticity of the mind. The child can develop more if they're young, if their minds are young, than if they're older. So therapies like occupational therapy, speech therapy and ABA for one's child, uh, that's all so slow to be accessed, all too slow for all too often. As parents of autistic children, we are regularly preyed upon to believe that early intervention and early diagnosis is vital for the child, wherein the neuroplasticity of the young child's brain can open up a world of growth and progression for autistic children. The reality is we know that Western liberal democracies preach about equality and the rights of disabled people, but when it suits them, they ignore the science which can enable and empower this vulnerable cohort. And this is partially what draws parents into the lion's den of fake treatments. We're all too aware when the child is diagnosed, preferably at an early stage in their life, the time is ticking. It's just like tick 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 and you hear it really loudly in your brain and time is proverbially waiting for nobody ideally early therapeutic intervention in the lives of the autistic child can engender progression and symptomological improvements certainly ideally the goals of therapy therapeutic intervention for autistic children is uh, to set desired goals for them as individuals to obtain to eliminate problem behaviours, to develop positive behaviours, to establish solid boundaries with a child which cannot be breached. However, the last thing you want to be with an autistic child is a pleasing force. So remove any obstacles from the environment that you know will set you up in that kind of role. Your presence is to develop your child if you recall autism as a developmental disorder well, it's our duty to attempt to facilitate and to develop the growing child. Your presence is not to be an overly uh, behaviour-obsessed, moral anchorite and strict disciplinarian. And I've seen professionals act in this way, which just shows you how ill-informed they are in their own profession. Um, I've seen educators not realising that providing an education 
for a young child with autism is much more than just an education. It's actually early intervention. So they act all um, tight, um, stopping, even impeding the child from accessing resources. With autistic children especially, this kind of behaviour strikes me as their uh, height of ignorance and prejudice. Autistic children are frequently typecast as being naughty, which is which is, is absolutely the personification of ignorance. When in fact, and I think you should, you already know this, but I will, I will just state the obvious because there are people out there who need the obvious to be stated. Them, the child that is autistic is not naughty. They're she's just manifesting symptoms the same way as a blind person who cannot see is manifesting the symptom of being blind. The same way the person who's in a wheelchair who cannot walk is uh, is manifesting the symptom of being physically disabled. The same way the person who's deaf who cannot hear is simply manifesting the uh, the symptom of being a deaf person. You can say that's their identity coming through as a uh, person with disability. We are discussing an ideal summary of what early intervention can amount to, of course. Ideal is divorced from the real. People may see the level the autistic child is on. They may panic that the child is nonverbal. They may fixate on the list of hypothetical co-occurring disorders referred to as comorbidity conditions that the child may or may not have. In the absence of timely intervention, which could hypothetically improve the levels of the autistic condition, parents can go into panic mode. Equally, they can go into panic mode if they don't see their child being particularly receptive to therapy. This is the kind of environment where asinine and overly simplistic claims of treatments and cures for autism can and do prevail. The medical establishment has been blamed accordingly the vaccine by the um, it's been blamed by by people who want to make money off vulnerable children so they'll blame the vaccinations that, that are given to children and infants and they'll say this will causes autism these approaches which know so much better than the, the rogue medical and scientific community also know and promise to cure your child's autism encouraging a discourse against empirically backed treatments like OT, ST and ABA um, <clears throat> nobody knows the causes of autism so there's no point in entertaining the idea that it was caused by a vaccine it's too complex for minds which are are reliant on simplistic and ununidimensional un causes and cures for autism to uh, accept that to rest assured the solution and please know I mean this sarcastically that like vultures that are gathering around and they're hungry for their carcass they have discovered an emotionally vulnerable group of people to feed simple ideas to uh, of what is the cause of autism and how it can be treated and what you get from that is and the autism cult and what I mean by that is that we have in this environment a cult-like mentocidal brainwashing uh, of facts which are subverted by bad-tempered ill-reason. In this autism cult, vaccines must be undermined. Big pharmaceutical companies must be spoken of with uh, massive helpings of evil conspiratorial theories. 
the people who are scattered of these asinine theories um, they're denounced and the culture of righteous believers is created in this place which is a vacuum where logic and rational reason has been kicked to touch uh, basically what I really want to say is that um, we can't prove that any vaccine has caused autism and um, the consequences of this type of thinking is actually has been proven to be murderous um, or at least severely damaging to the health of children. I mean, there are people who believe that their child got autism because of the vaccine and they are giving their child bleach and the child is does not want to be given the bleach and uh, they believe they don't want that because their their child is autistic and nonverbal and that's why they're fighting the bleach and when their child acts uh, reacts accordingly to bleach I mean I mean bleach can really really damage your health and if they act um, they react to it in a, in, 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 a, in a way that shows their health has been affected. They believe that's the, actually the bleach working on them and working on their autism. Currently, there's a Danish Christian cult claiming that autism is caused by evil spirits, which I've told you before. So they treat the condition with exorcism. And people actually really believe, some people, that this is the cure for autism. As I said before, there is no known cure for autism. This trusting forward an agenda, which is an anti-neurodiversity agenda. This turns your autistic child's neurotypical... Uh, this is basically a what I think um, the idea of uh, curing autism is basically a neurotypical... example of neurotypical autocracy. And basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to wage war on neurodiversity, which we see in, 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 in the... In the uh, in the sort of the that's the subtext of the regime of uh, autism cure and autism treatment is to wage war on diversity of neurodiversity and on disability um whilst christians can blame satan and certain christians obviously not all christians i'm a christian i don't believe satan um so whilst in this logic satan and demoniacs are to blame for autism uh, others choose uh, uh anti um, they're basically anti-vaxxers. They can they sh can choose uh, bleach to give to children, which invariably and unequivocally can poison them to death. Then there's the Dan group, <coughs> again another group that's basically uh, like fascist autocrats that are against neurodiversity. This is Dan stands for defeat autism now, and they provide customized diet supplements and restrictive diets to autistic children. Which just casing free gluten free diet, which actually doesn't um, work, and it can actually cause in their hyperbole, uh, it can cause uh, such such damage to autism. Now, you autistic people, they might think, how is that the case? If a, uh, maybe it's wonderful to have a casing free um, diet and uh, and so on. Um, it's not a gluten free diet. Autistics are picky eaters. Uh, some autistics will only eat certain shapes of food, certain colours of food. Um, 
and if you're going to introduce a diet in, in, in into their diet into into their uh, life, you can increase their aptitude for being um, even more restricted dieting, uh, uh, restricted eaters, and will they ever eat for you again? It's so nerve wracking. As you can imagine, bleach therapy is an absolutely homicidal or pseudo homicidal therapy, and I've come across case where a medical, <coughs> a medical doctor, I mean a proper doctor, not just uh, a doctor you see in uh, The Simpsons, um, he told the parents of an autistic child that their son had excessive mercury and prescribed bleach therapy for the child. I mean, if you cannot trust your medical doctor to be a person of science and a person of orthodox medicine, then who can you trust to be a, a source of safety and decency uh, for the treatment of your child. As Bradley Sadnozny of NBC News quoted in May 2019, quote, parents are poisoning their children with bleach to cure autism. And that was actually the title of his article. So that's the end quote. Online groups have blamed viruses, bacteria, fungal infections, parasites, heavy metal poisoning from vaccines, allergies, gluten, and the planet, or actually that's a satellite. Satellite, is it? You can correct me. I don't know. The moon. So that's also been blamed for uh, causing autism. And they people have actually recommended if you put pit, uh, into your piss turpentine, that can cure it. Whilst miracle... Miracle Mineral Solutions, MMS, have claimed to cure AIDS, cancer, diabetes, and wouldn't you know, autism also, by giving chlorine dioxide to patients, which can cause irreparable damage to tissues, the digestive system, and the kidneys. It can <coughs> cause it, it can cause permanent uh, damage. It, of course, it can kill you. If you pl put uh, bleach on a napkin or cotton, it will destroy it. Um, chemical castration has also been uh, fronted to treat autism. And I wonder why. Not only does that sound like uh, a fake cure, it also sounds like a, a anti-neurodiversity um, uh, policy uh, and treatment, which uh, the uh, fascist um, anti-neurodiversity brigade would love and the eugenicists of the 19th century would, would also uh, endorse that type of treatment for autistic people. So parents who do that and parents who also give their children bleach and do irreparable harm, all they are doing is uh, killing off neurodiversity in our world and not embracing it. And you have um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, that's hyperbaric oxygen therapy which is also being fronted to treat autistic people. It's torturous and it's a waste of money. Some people use stem cell therapy and that's, again, there's no scientific basis to it, so just forget about it. Um, other people uh, use craniosacral therapy and um, just so you can be, you can know um, craniosacral therapy is based on an an erroneous understanding of the how of the of the brain and it's again not a cure for autism and it shouldn't be a treatment for it either. 
uh, certainly not uh, a treatment that should be endorsed by uh, health insurers or the medical the orthodox medical community it does not infer that the medical establishment has the absolute monopoly on knowledge and understanding regarding autism uh, i told you the dsm2 uh, defined autism as a form of childhood schizophrenia. It's nothing to do with schizophrenia autism. Parents are amateurs and instead of um, embracing um, and entertaining therapies that are uh, not legitimate and not based in science, um, they just embrace something that's not to do with evidence and what they get is exploitation of their offspring. And it's more than just misfortunes. I really don't have the words to describe how awful that is. Autism is something that humbles me. I think I'll live to be 100 and I'll still not know anything about autism. Even if I study for a lifetime, which I intend to do, I'm sure that I'll still know more. I, I find my autistic child is an enigma. How will I ever get to know fully an enigma? I even find my neuro, neurotypical child to be an enigma, so that will tell you a lot. I find autism to be terribly puzzling and enigmatic as individuals and as a topic of study. It's frightening to think, uh, to think what uh, there exists, a scarcity of resources, and in that scarcity, you have desperate parents trying to treat their children and uh, getting it wrong. And you must remember that in the 1970s, autistic people were written off who were who were moderately autistic with ADHD or severely autistic. They were seen as untreatable and their parents were told to forget about their offspring, just like the Nazis would have told um, the parents of disabled uh, children uh, to forget about their offspring and just leave them in an institution. Um, Luckily, there are parents who rejected this idea, and that's where we have the Sunrise Program, and that's where we have Temple Grandin, because their children were perceived as being write-offs, but the parents of these children refused to, and they ended up uh, developing fantastically. The vastly talented, award-winning documentary filmmaker Louis Thoreau, he made a documentary called Extreme Love Autism, and as a, a parent of an autistic child, I've often thought about this documentary because there was uh, an educational institution featuring in America, which is featured in an autism school. And I said, this is the dream of what an autism school should be like. Basically, it didn't matter to the institution if you were an extremely autistic person that wanted to, to destroy walls and bite and scream and throw things around. It didn't matter if you were a high-functioning autistic that had six languages. It didn't matter if you were, you were minimally verbal and... and um, you know, just a soul that was trying to develop uh, uh, with all the complications disorder. They would embrace everyone and nobody was uh, expelled. The institutions that expel autistic children, they should be, they should be, uh, they should be fined or banned. And the teachers who are, who, who write up reports that autistic children should be expelled from schools, they should lose their license and they should be perceived for what they are, which is unfit to teach. Um, this, uh, this school was staffed by truly wonderful, professional and well-trained staff. And the reality is just beautiful to see. I was so 
I would, I would be so honoured if my child could go to a, a school like that and uh, not um, a school that would be uh, filled with what I would call competent professionals to help people with special needs to, to grow. Uh, if you don't believe me, you'll believe me that there is a vast uh, gulf, uh, an inadequate gulf uh, between what is ideal and what, uh, what is less ideal in the world of schools for autistic people. Children as young as three I've seen with autism given state-funded hours in preschools. Uh, I've seen the preschool being granted additional resources and support, including one-to-one -one support and the wonderful uh, uh, leaders of these schools uh, expelling the the child, having pretended they gave the child uh, plenty of chances and um, and opportunity, and that uh, basically they were doing their best, but they had to let the child go. And then another autistic child would would join the year a year later, and that poor autistic child would also be expelled. And it's not at all uncommon in the preschool sector in Ireland. Uh, so naturally, school comes along then. And the autistic child would have had absolutely no preparatory work done for school. The child being in an autism unit, um, he might have more complications than it's uh, than the unit uh, wants to deal with because it's a, a unit that wants to discriminate against certain genres of uh, autistic children. The same way as Hodges Berger and the Nazi psychiatrists discriminated against autistic children wherein the ones that were seen as being capable were allowed to flourish and the ones who were not, well, they were murdered. So you also get this in certain autism units um, where a psychologist might recommend uh, for the child to be given resources, including one-to-one -one resources, but that goes on deaf ears uh, because, as I said before, uh, bureaucrats and administrators uh, are... Are are capable of with a with a with a flick of a pen uh, destroying a, a young person's or any person's um, life without feeling any particular guilt about that. Just like Eichmann did when he authored the Final Solution, believing that he it was nothing to do with him. The murder of six point six million people. They are also uh, pen pushers are notoriously able to wash their hands of the guilt, which should be uh, fully upon their shoulders. The, the child's need bec becomes ignored, health and safety issues accrue because the school is not wanting these children and they just want to, that child, that, that child that may have ADHD or other, other comorbidities to be expelled so that they can wash their hands of that child. Um, and that's the reality of, of uh, what a, a school can be like for autistic children that don't conform uh, to the functioning criteria and the behavioural criteria and the disciplinary criteria of schools. Um, schools like children to sit down and they don't want children with ADHD because uh, they, are, they are disrupting the neurotypically developing uh, child from um, getting an education and uh, there are other children to um, take into account even though we know that autism is a spectrum and that if you meet one autistic child you have met just one autistic child um, so many units are not up to date with that and they believe that all autistics ought to conform in uniformity even though autism is anti-uniformity and anti-conformity by its nature uh, so the child that is most vulnerable um, will uh, will be uh, will be churned out by by an uncaring system, and uh, they will noticeably regress.
causing even more profound stress to the child's parents. So yes, you heard me right. The child is either granted support by the state or recommended support and the school that is providing the, uh, the education to the autistic child but fails to realise that education is also intervention um, for the autistic child. They're simply refusing to provide that child with support and they're basically destroying his ability to progress. Autistic people are three times more likely to be abused, neglected, robbed and assaulted. So they really are a vulnerable people. 50% of autistic people are most likely to be abused by some adults. Whilst the right to an education is put into content and and uh, basically, basically, in, if we put all this into uh, context uh, by statistics, one in five autistic people are deprived of their right to an education. Out of the group of people uh, who are autistic, uh, they get an education. That's roughly 80% of the autistic community. 50% of these school-going autistic people are more likely to suffer depression and to be bullied. Uh, only 15% of the autistic adult population have a full-time job. People with autism are also more susceptible to be uh, lied to. They're more likely to be targets of human predators. And they're also uh, poor at detecting if they are being lied to, which is obviously extremely worrying. Autistic children are very vulnerable to being abused by teachers and carers. Alan Schwartz uh, highlights this horrific uh, reality on mentalhealth.net. Mentalhealth.net. Uh, when he wrote this article, Abuse of Ch Special Needs Children in Our Public Schools. Um, end quote. Children with a rich degree of conditions like ADD, ADHD, co-occurring with autism, they find it hard which is utterly understandable and logical to stay still because of, their, of the clinical presentation of their disabilities. What they're presenting with is what they're manifesting. The GAD or the Government Accounting Office was uh, allied a task to report to a congressional committee about special needs. Their conclusion was that, quote, special education teachers are either not trained or poorly trained to deal with special needs children. The abuse of practice of these uh, uh, of these teachers cause the child with autism, ADHD, ADD to internalize a negative self-image that they are both bad and hopeless. I wish to anticipate your incredulity and your disbelief and your protest of what I'm saying. Your arguments will say that I imagine what I'm talking about, but I am in engaging in my own nonsense and that that corporal punishment is illegal and surely I am just writing and broadcasting sensational nonsense in order, in order sensational nonsense in order to be heard. I wish to report to you that you are right. I am eager to be sensational and do forgive me, but that would be a lie. Uh, basically I'm not sensational. I wish what I was saying was, was not the truth, but it is the truth. Cases have been cited of children with autism, learning disabilities and mental illness being Harshly disciplined at school, one child was suffocated to death by a teacher, another child was restrained, exiled to time out for hours at a time by their adult supervisors. Matthew Rosa, he wrote in January of 15, 2019 in salon.com of an autistic nine-year-old boy in an article entitled, A Viral Video of a Teacher Abusing an Autistic Boy Goes 
um, goes viral highlights how our society misunderstands autism ends with the quote actually and that's actually the title of his article um Matthew Roser writes about how Kentuckian teacher Trina Abrams she basically drugged um she sorry sorry she she basically she she grabbed and dragged a nine-year-old autistic boy down a hallway in brutal fashion um, I've also heard of children strangulating uh, a child, an autistic child to death. In 2019, Gilding Hands School in El Dorado uh, Hills, California, had its certification as a school revoked when an autistic teen was killed there. Whilst Noel Titteridge wrote an article entitled Pupil Abuse in Special School, filmed on, CCT on CCTV, the article details organised abuse of special needs children revealed via the CCTV of a special needs school in London involving physical abuse, physical assault and padded seclusion rooms. This was in a school of 300 pupils in Whitefield School. The pupils were aged 3 to 19. Because the children were unable to communicate verbally, they were perceived as easy targets for abuse. And I've come across this. <coughs> the only reason why it, it may have been revealed is maybe the children would have done drawings and showing what was going on in kind of, kind of what you call comic versions using dialogue, describing what their abusers did. So the uh, ability of autistic people who are nonverbal and Down syndrome people who are nonverbal to actually be able to communicate what they've been through, that actually exists. In IrelandJournal.e dated Monday the 13th, 2014, wrote an article entitled, quote, Revealed Autistic Children Locked in Unsupervised Isolation Room for Hours, end quote. The article concluded that in Ireland, special needs teachers are insufficiently trained. Well, duh, that's obvious. These horror stories are not rare. For example, CBS News published an article entitled, quote, Daycare court workers ch uh, charged after snapshot shows taunting abuse of an autistic child, end quote. Also, let me add, battering and assault charges uh, were placed against these, these childcare workers. Some autistic nonverbal children have identified their abuse. They endured by drawings and dialogues, which I've already told you. An eight-year-old um, with, with, with Down syndrome child grabbed onto his mother, pointed at his teacher, and hid behind her, revealing to her to his mother what abuse he may have endured, which actually was proven that he actually was was was, was true. He was enjoying um, that abuse. I've come to the end of this podcast. What I've actually um, demonstrated is my experiential uh, relationship, my personal experiential relationship with autism. I've also demonstrated to you the history of autism, the history of mental illness, and how that has shifted in the sands of time. I've also demonstrated to you uh, the clinical etiology uh, of, of autism, how that's changed, and how uh, psychiatrists have, um, and, and carers and educators have indeed abused and not been kind to the most vulnerable populations uh, in our world. I intend to continue uh, podcasting, um, possibly at autism, but certainly about mental health, certainly about cults and certainly about psychology and psychoanalysis in order to be able to help myself and you uh, to enlighten our, us and to be more caring towards those who require a compassionate outlook in life. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast, Dark Days.
uh, dawning podcast by me, uh, Michael Mulville, and do tune in again when I do more podcasting. Bye for now.